Hello and welcome to The Global Insight from Control Risks, the specialist risk consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. This is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. There's no shortage of statistics telling us that democracy is under pressure. There are now more people living in the world in environments where free speech is being eroded, where key institutions like the judiciary are not trusted to be impartial than are living in environments which are liberal democracies and where free speech is protected. We wanted to use this podcast to test those statistics and to explore the extent to which democracy does seem to be under pressure or to be eroding in different parts of the world and to explore what that means for business and for levels of stability, both geopolitically and domestically. We are reminded on a regular basis that democracy is not the only model for government and not the sole way forward. There's an arc to the story of democracy. Some countries are at the beginning of that arc. Others are at the top. Others might be sliding towards the end. In this podcast, we ask the question, how healthy is democracy? those of us who are citizens of liberal democracies, we are so used to this system of electoral processes and us always having the opportunity to cast our votes or not to cast our votes, as the case may be, and and that our views would be represented, will be represented by the parties elected. I worry that both as citizens, but also some politicians have started throwing rocks at this system, which really is a system that only works if everybody's committed to it or the, the majority, a substantial majority of the country is committed to it. That's Elizabeth Brow, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. There are different ways of talking about the threat to democracy and the threat to elections. Some of those threats are you might describe as internal. Some of those threats you might describe as external. Um, You're a specialist, Elizabeth, in hybrid threats. Um, Tell us a little bit if you think that threats against democracy from the outside and tampering with the electoral process through disinformation, misinformation aimed at elections by hostile foreign powers fits into this calculus and the way we see things developing with democratic processes around the world. Yeah, so that was uh, a major concern a few years ago. We obviously saw it in in the 2016 US elections where Russia uh, did meddle. It's not clear how much success it had, but it did try to to change the outcome of the elections. It doesn't really matter whether the meddling country succeeds in changing the outcome of the elections. It always succeeds in discrediting the electoral process because people then believe that actually the outcome is... is, uh, Uh, can't be trusted. And we saw that after the 2016 US elections leading up to the 2018 midterms that a majority of of Americans didn't um, have faith in the outcome, didn't matter in in that case whether Russia managed to to, uh, change the outcome. It had managed to undermine Americans' trust in democracy. There have become fewer, the, the opportunities for, for that kind of meddling have uh, decreased simply because it's harder to, to try the same trick twice. What's interesting about hybrid warfare or, or uh, gray zone uh, aggression is, is the concept or the, the label. Just that's such an interesting concept. Talk us through the definition of gray zone aggression. 
So gray zone aggression is aggression by a hostile state and or its proxies vis-a-vis another country involving means below the threshold of armed military violence. And would you say that interference with a democratic process and interference with elections is one of the manifestations or one of the tactics of gray zone aggression? It certainly is. And we should remember that that today countries are not really that interested in taking territory from another country uh, simply because it's, it's just a big headache uh, taking it. <laughs> As Russia is demonstrating. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's so interesting. That's totally out of the ordinary. And it seems to have to do more with, with Putin's obsession with Ukraine as opposed to any logical uh, uh, gains that Russia would would uh, get by, by uh, occupying Ukraine and, and uh, well, by having it be part of, of Russia. To what extent do you think that institutions are alive to the extent to which democracy is under threat in liberal democracies? I think they are, and uh, that awareness has has increased in in recent years. So we saw, for example, the the excellent report by uh, the UK Parliament's Intelligence and Security Committee on on Russian subversion. Uh, In Sweden, we have seen a new um, psychological defense agency that is doing spectacular work um, identifying hostile influence campaigns and 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 uh, well thwarting them and and also educating the public about uh, about disinformation and, and teaching information literacy to public awareness campaigns. So there are a number of efforts underway, uh, not, not completely comprehensive in every country. In fact, no country has a, a comprehensive uh, plan, but individual initiatives here and there. What we're going to hear from a colleague of ours in this podcast is that there are two different types of problematic elections. There's the problem in mature, developed liberal democracies that appears to be one of decay or decline in the institution of elections and, and, and democracy. There's another type of problem with democratic processes that is the result of growing pains and experimentation and the adoption of democratic processes. So sort of rather than on the decline, it's sort of, if you will, on the way up. And I'm I'm wondering what your views are on on those two types of of you know those two spots on the arc of of democracy, liberal democracy, and it, and its institutions. Well, it's certainly true that that not every country that that begins the journey towards becoming a a full fledged democracy will will do very well initially. And I think this is where sometimes Western governments are maybe a little bit naive or maybe arrogant when they try to. To help countries along this this path by uh, helping them speed up that process and helping them make uh, their democracies just like ours by, for example, insisting on on, on rights for for various groups. Western governments think that that's them doing the right thing and them uh, just being incredibly helpful, whereas those countries will perceive it, that to be interference. And I think if we were to put ourselves in the position of, of representatives and citizens of such countries, we would indeed consider it interference because we, uh, I think everybody has pride in their own country and, and countries have the right to, to try to, to set themselves up uh, as best as as they can, and obviously get help if they need um, it from 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 other countries. But uh, we have seen it time and again uh, that Western countries have, out of a sense of of wanting to help, uh, done 
uh, said things, done things that uh, were perceived as interference in those countries, uh, that won't end well. And I think, unfortunately, that's uh, something that happened in Russia as well in the 90s and, and in the, the early years of this decade uh, when um, the West tried to help and, and it just came across as, uh, to a large extent as, as interference. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting point. Thank you for that. It's, yeah, it's this whole idea of, you know, we know what we're doing. Let us tell you how to do it um, hasn't always worked out very well. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, business and companies. And, you know, we like to think that liberal democracies, you know, sort of free people, free markets are better places to do business than places where the state controls the market or the state's interests are paramount. Where does business hang in the balance in, you know, the reliability of of, of electoral institutions? It is a, a huge challenge when the government in any country can act in an unpredictable manner. Companies can't determine from, from the number of indicators that they themselves uh, analyze and judge. They can't predict how the government will act. It is really extremely difficult when when uh, you have an authoritarian government that, yes, provides stability, but on the other hand, can act uh, unpredictably. You have no way of, of, of trying to discern that process. And, and I think maybe in, in the early years of globalization, that was seen as an acceptable risk uh, because there was so much money to be made. But now companies, I think, are becoming more concerned about um about that lack of predictability, because as as we know, the one thing companies want more than anything else is uh, is predictability so that they can plan. It strikes me that it's going to be particularly difficult for companies to navigate ESG requirements in this world where democracy is undergoing pressure, um, where all the values that are we associate with liberal democracies are under pressure, where there are growing question marks about protection for human rights freedom of speech across the world, actually, in all kinds of um, political environment. And yet companies are under more and more pressure to be openly uh, defending these kinds of values and norms and to be demonstrating if and why and how they're operating in places where there may be um, there may be a threat to human rights, the protection of human rights, and to and and to democracy, freedom of speech, and so on. That's that's absolutely the case. And there is another aspect that is uh, gaining traction and uh, is is very hard to predict, and that is uh, the public uh, public sentiment. So consumer boycotts. That's something that's uh, coming up more and more often, more and more frequently, and uh, it it is virtually impossible to predict because. We don't know what will take off on Twitter or, or other social media. We don't know what's a, what will what will fire up the people's anger about um, about a particular uh, country or company. So that is another aspect that that is making life very hard for for uh, for executives and and for those in charge of, of steering some sort of uh, relatively steady uh, course for their companies. Awareness of political, country, and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes.
we talked about predictability and, and forgive me for circling back to something that we've just covered, but, you know, we were talking about authoritarian governments and, and we were talking about elections and predictability. And I just remember something that used to come up all the time when I was a student of Soviet affairs many, many years ago, when the Soviets, let alone the Russians, but the Soviets of the time just didn't understand the entire concept of elections. They kept on saying, you know, everything's going along fine. Everything's doing great. And then every four years, you throw everything up in the air again with no idea how it's all going to come out. You know, why do you do that? And on the topic of predictability, elections do have sometimes unpredictable outcomes. I guess if I were a wiser person back then, um, I might have responded by saying, well, it's the process that matters and the process itself is stable and transparent and a stable and transparent process allows you to forecast so that you're not necessarily throwing all of the pieces off the board every four years and hoping that they land someplace nice. Yes, you're giving people the chance to course correct or even do something more dramatic, but you know when it's going to happen and you know how it's going to happen. And then you might be able to deal better with the outcome. I mean, would you agree with that? Or are elections, let's play devil's advocate here. Are elections a major pain in the rear? They are, but they're also the, the only way that most of us would be willing to lead our lives. That's why we saw the, the revolutions behind the Iron Curtain in a, in, a, in a very rapid succession in 1989 and 1990. Yes, they had predictability. And yes, the planned economy did produce consumer goods that, that were mostly available, not always. But And, and, and there was uh, incredible stability for any companies uh, that, that did business there, a few Western companies did. But the people were just not willing to live under uh, a system where they had no input into how the country, their respective country was governed. And I think it's, it, it is a, a human need, uh, whether we grew up in liberal democracies or not, it's a human need to, to feel that at least, at least we have some sort of input into the way in which the 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 uh, the school, the the town, the country, whatever the setting may be, uh, how how uh, that is run, because we don't want to be just mere uh, little uh, chess pieces that are mean being moved around by somebody else. And so, in the scheme of things, yes, it would be fantastic if if there were no electoral ups upsets that would then force companies to to amend their strategies, and maybe that would cause. Uh, companies to lose money, but uh, even people who work in in private business are are citizens at the end of the day, and I think they would much prefer to to see democracy uh, as opposed to to uh, incredibly stable, uh, but but also incredibly deadening authoritarian rule. I think while elections and major party political moments give us an opportunity to take stock and forecast the direction a country is going to go in and get a sense of what sort of policy and regulatory environment might might be down the road. They also, of course, give businesses an opportunity as well, don't they? Something to hang their own forecasts on. And that, I think, is critical at the moment, particularly in these times of heightened uncertainty and turbulence for companies to be able to keep a very close eye and monitor what's going on so that they can anticipate where the political environment is evolving, what that might mean for their operations. 
So in the absence of a global force, which is defending and promoting democracy, what is the outlook for liberal democracies and for democracy globally? Well, I think there's a difference between supporting democracies and and wanting to promote liberal democracy in countries that that haven't reached that stage. Um, so if if a, if a democracy needs support, uh, such as Ukraine, uh, it, at the moment, then it's it's absolutely right for democracies to to help that country. But where the where liberal democracies, where the West has gone wrong, and and Europe and 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 North America in particular, is in wanting to impose their models of democracy on 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 um, on countries in in on other continents, and that that hasn't ended well. And and for example, Rwanda is is a good case. Uh, it it's clearly not a democracy, but it's a country that has done extremely well since emerging from uh, an incredibly destructive civil war. But yet Western politicians have kept going there uh, and kept communicating from their capitals that Rwanda should do this and this and this and that uh, to become uh, uh, a more worthy democracy. And if we if we turn that around, what would we say if another country, be it Russia, be it China, be it Saudi Arabia, kept telling us how to run our countries? We clearly wouldn't appreciate that. And, and they, they might say, well, we have figured out how to how to how to run a society successfully, and this is our way. Now we'll tell you how to do it in your countries because it really works well for us. So I think we have to be aware of that and and not uh, not um, impose our way of life on other countries, even if we do so with with good intentions. And then the other thing, Claudine, is that there is so much to work to be done at home today to make sure that that our democracies remain vibrant and and unsullied by by these various attacks that that uh have been perpetrated against it either through uh through malice or through ignorance and and so there's an incredible amount of work that that we need to do at home and and it's urgent that we do it because otherwise uh, people will really lose faith in the electoral process uh, at home and 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 if that is the case we really face uh, the risk of our countries becoming ungovernable, and 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 the the most dramatic example of that is the United States. But it's it, it's uh, it could happen in other countries as well. So we we shouldn't. So those of us who don't live in the U.S. shouldn't sit back and, and say, "Well, look look how bad it is in the U.S. It's a good thing I don't live in the U.S." It could happen elsewhere as well if we don't all, or if if not most of us, uh, take uh, take pride in uh, doing our part for our democracies. Elizabeth, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you very much for setting aside some time for us. Um, and, and we're very grateful for your comments. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Elizabeth. Claudine, this must be one of the most difficult political environments in which to be a company. And that's for a number of reasons, and no one will ever give a complete list of why, but this is in part because companies themselves are political actors. And perhaps they always have been ever since the first company made the first campaign contribution and probably even before that. Um, and in fact, the US Supreme Court has said that companies have freedom of speech just like individuals. Um, but beyond 
campaign contributions. Companies are citizens. Companies are global. Companies have diverse groups of employees. Companies have revenues that are bigger than some countries' GDP. And their ability to maneuver without breaking anything is becoming incredibly difficult. We're talking about political risk fundamentally, aren't we, Chuck? And why are our clients interested? And and why in particular do they ask us to do so much work relating to elections? I think it it boils down to that word that you just mentioned, stability, predictability, that that word that Elizabeth mentioned. Um, it, it, It helps companies to understand what sort of stability to anticipate, how stable the business environments that they are operating in are. All of those things link back to the nature of the political institution, the strength of institutions um, and how they can expect those institutions to behave, particularly where we're in moments of crisis such as the pandemic. We really saw that, didn't we, when we were tracking um, how governments were responding to the pandemic, having a really good knowledge about what makes a country work, whatever its political setup really helps to anticipate how it's going to behave in a moment of crisis. Um, But I think political risk also matters these days um, because it's a driver of geopolitics, but it's also being impacted by geopolitics. And again, that applies regardless of whether we're talking about liberal democracies or other forms of government. You mentioned this issue about whether authoritarian governments or liberal democracies emerged from the pandemic better. And and I think that you and I were watching the pandemic and the amount of disruption that it produced very, very carefully, Claudine. And what we saw was a difference in the amount of robustness with which governments intervened during the pandemic. And they did that for two different reasons. Authoritarian style governments did it because they could. Um, democracies did that and they did it best when they had the trust and the confidence of the people that they were governing, um, where there was a certain amount of social cohesion, but when there was a very strong contract between the public and its government. Um, In the absence of that contract, you just had strength. And that was the big difference between the way democracies and autocracies managed the pandemic, the way they came out of it was how happy they were to reel back some of those interventions that they made during the pandemic. And what's interesting is that we assume that autocracies left those levers of control in their countries that they rolled out during the pandemic. Um, There were some other countries that where you might have expected to, to loosen the grip a bit and they didn't. I think it's probably no coincidence, actually, is it, Chuck, that we are talking about democracy being under threat after a period of unprecedented intervention by states of all kinds into our lives during the pandemic. Another key driver, I think, of the work that we're doing, helping our clients understand the political environments in which they're working and the outlook for particular elections, is that these are extremely emotive issues which matter to employees. They matter to your people. And being conscious of that and of the fact that there may be people with lots of very different opinions about 
how a government should be run, how it should be selected, is a really important part of being a successful global company. Claudine, we as political risk professionals, and sometimes even as colleagues and friends and as individuals, have been accused of operating under a certain level of Western bias. Let's have a look at this from another part of the world. Indonesia and other Asian countries see the U.S. and other Western countries as a model. And then when the model is, let's just say, eroding, then there is a loss in trust. And whenever anyone from the West tries to say, okay, this is how democracy should be, then the people in Asia was like, um, well, not really, because now we see what's going on at your, your end. And it doesn't look democratic to us. That's Ahmad Sukersono, Associate Director, based in our Singapore office. The so-called erosion of democracy is a US-centric idea, you know, a Western notion. Like in many non-Western countries, free electoral democracy is a new or developing concept. Like you don't have an erosion when the ground has never been solid, right? When businesses enter non-Western democracies, they need to step out of the Western conceptions of democracy. That conception of democracy has evolved for centuries um, before producing you know, these illiberal cases of Trump and Maloney. I mean, they need to understand that democracies have their own time frame in, in Asia or in, in the Pacific. I mean, I cover two democracies, right, at the moment. Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. Now, genuine democracy only started 20 years ago in Indonesia after three decades of authoritarian rule that followed two chaotic decades of post-colonial nation building. Meanwhile, PNG only got its independence after centuries of Western rule less than 50 years ago. Now, the first 25 years of that, they copied the British first past the poll system that turned out to be a nightmare that ignored you know, the social fabric of PNG as it only encouraged warring tribes that you know, drove behind the candidates fight each other in you know, these single seat districts. From 2007, PNG has been using a preferential voting system like in Australia to moderate these tribal consultations, but violence continues to mar this democracy, including last July's election. But calling elections in Indonesia, this is the world's third largest democracy, calling elections in Indonesia, calling elections in Papua New Guinea as sham elections, despite their irregularities, their violence, I think is ahistorical and also offensive. These are examples of young democracies going forward that need time to just iron out their internal post-colonial differences and deal with teething problems. Allow me to push you on a couple of things, um, two if I may. And that is, um, number one, that we're being a little bit unfair on emerging democratic processes. If we were to call Indonesia or Papua New Guinea fledgling democracies, that probably wouldn't go down very well either, would it? Number one. And number two, 
you said that when businesses come to this part of the world, they have to step out of their Western mindset. Tell us what mindset they need to step into. Don't call them fledgling democracies, call them maturing democracies. Nice. Thank you. I mean, I consider these democracies as youthful democracies. And we've been young before, right, Chuck? Well, for some of us, way before others, but yeah, go on. And, you know, when you're young and when you're a teenager, you make mistakes, right? You make misjudgments in your youth. But isn't that part of growing up? And as long as you are alive and kicking, as long as democracy is alive and kicking, these combustible experiences are lessons in the process of maturity. So for certain countries, I do not believe there is an erosion of democracy, a stagnation probably, a frustration, yes, of course, but not a backsliding. If we call it erosion, it's like your parents call when you were a teenager, you're not going anywhere, right? When you are going somewhere, you're experiencing something and you're trying to learn from your mistakes. And that's where these young democracies are at. When you call them even eroding, that's an insult. It's like parents calling kids when they try to experiment things that you're not doing it right. Again, that doesn't play well. Claudine and I are both biting on the microphone here (laughs) because this is and we'll get to the business bit in a minute. When we're talking about experimenting. Who are we experimenting on and what's going on in the laboratory and who, you know, to what degree are the, is the public in PNG or the citizens of Indonesia, um, you know, to what degree do they benefit or not from this experimentation? In many of these young democracies, it's already irreversible for them. They don't want to go back to their undemocratic state. That's definitely the kind of view in Indonesia and PNG. No way, they don't wanna go back to a time when democracy was not there. They want to negotiate with this new system. They want to allow the groups, the interest groups in their country to negotiate what is the shape because that is what's going on. It's taking shape. Look at PNG, because Um, centuries of Western colonization, then they only know democracy from the British and Australia. They then use the first past the post system on a country that did not have, uh, up till now, does not have a majority. It's a country of minorities, of tribal um, groups. If you put first past the post on that kind of community, then what you'll have is tribes becoming so-called parties, and then warring through these elections. And they only realized that after 25 years, and they changed it into preferential system so that they could at least have more kind of moderation to this confrontational consultation. They are trying their best now. It will be a process that is kind of painful, but it will have to require patience. Same thing in Indonesia. Indonesia only got democracy like 20 years ago. Every five years, the, the rules on election in Indonesia changes. Why? Because again, the, the, the interest groups are not finding it comfortable yet. 
as these democracies are maturing, what does it mean for foreign investors? Does it mean that they can expect a more open and transparent and predictable type of policymaking? Does it mean that institutions are becoming more transparent and robust? Does it mean that uh, the decisions of the judiciary are becoming more impartial? Does it mean that corruption is being addressed? Talk us through what this process means for foreign investors. Countries want to have better governance. The countries want to have less corruption. The countries want to have reliable judiciary, but that will take time through processes. So understanding local cultures, you know, political dynamics, social movements is very vital for a business that enters these maturing democracies. It's not a given. Democracy is not a given in these countries and could be chaotic. And it could, yes, at one point, probably it could backslide. I mean, I see Thailand. They are going through their own kind of maturing. You're characterizing political and economic environment that require companies to have either an extremely robust appetite for risk or a real belts and braces internal approach to managing risk because it sounds like there's going to be an awful lot of it. I think, yes, every business when they enter a young democracy will face a lot of risk. That's for sure. But it's not impossible to manage this risk. And it's actually simple if you really want to do that. The way to do it is by investing in knowing your hosts, that you are the guests and you need to know your hosts better. Try to create a social interaction with the hosts. It becomes a mutually symbiotic relationship rather than a patronizing relationship. You have to have a public affairs department. You have to have people from the country itself in positions that impact decision. They are not just your distributor. They are not just your marketer. They should also be one of your thought leaders. Because when you do not think or at least know the thinking of the host, you will always be proven wrong. Because you'll be hearing yourself rather than hearing views of the host. Ahmad, joining us from Asia, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Ahmad. Much to keep on eye as political systems face threats from within and have to measure up against competing systems on the global stage. Claudine, for the avoidance of doubt, we both live in London. Accents aside, we're both British citizens. Your government, for the purposes of argument, changed twice without anybody going to the polls. I tried on three separate occasions to submit an absentee ballot in the U.S. midterms and failed each time because of how difficult that is. Who's got the harder time of it? The folks who sit at home while their government changes or the ones who are constantly running to the polls? (laughs) If you liked what you heard on this episode of The Global Insight, make sure to subscribe. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts as well, like Decrypt, featuring our experts from across the world making sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting business. 
As always, thanks for listening. 